Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We're continuing our rewatch of The Leftovers today as we hit Episode 9 from Season 2, 10.13. My name is Justin Hamilton, and I think you're the most relentless person I've ever met at Big Squid. It's our third podcast for the week as we hit the penultimate episode for Season 2 of The Leftovers. Uh, Just between you and me, I'm currently in quarantine after waking up with a sore throat and a general feeling of fatigue. So with the current situation in Sydney escalating, I've been off for a COVID test and I'm now sitting in my apartment waiting for my results. So fingers crossed, I'm just a little run down with everything that's been going on this year. But to be honest, I'm feeling a bit exhausted and I didn't want to uh, skip this podcast. I know there's uh, those of you who are watching week to week uh, and I appreciate that. So I don't want to leave you hanging. So let's just crack into today's episode of The Leftovers entitled 1013. We're not stepping it up. They're forgetting. There are rumors you're planning your own action on October 14th. That's ridiculous. Are you sure you want to know? We find Meg snorting lines of coke in a bathroom. We have no idea what time of day it is, but she's alone. She looks at herself in the mirror, admiring her reflection. Outside, it is daytime, and we soon discover Meg is at lunch with her mother. They're discussing Meg's upcoming wedding an event her mother would like to pay for. Meg thinks her mother is relentless, but her mother disagrees. You are the most relentless person I've ever known, she says. When you have a cause, there's no stopping you. 
Her mother begins to tell her something, but Meg stops her because she has to go to the bathroom. Her mother says that the story can wait. Meg goes in and has another little bump, and when she returns to her table, she finds her mother on the ground, surrounded by staff, a waiter desperately attempting to keep her alive. Meg can't do anything but stand and watch. She can see her life falling apart in front of her eyes, but the moment and the drugs have left her removed. She can't move. She's impotent. Meg watches as her mother dies. The date is October 13. We find a bus full of people singing, celebrating life. Meg sits with her fiancé, their hands entwined, green wristbands hanging loosely about their wrists. They finally arrive at their destination, the town of Miracle, Jarden. The couple slip on the headphones and drive golf carts around the streets, taking in the sights and sounds of the town and the stories that help remind everyone why this place is so special. They hear about the gas explosion that ripped apart the road. They listen to Cecilia's story about her wedding dress, but decline to have their photo taken with her. Yet the next place they visit isn't on the map and doesn't have a corresponding story to listen to. This home is a place where a psychic lives and Meg wants to go in. The fiancé is uncertain, but Meg is convinced of how special this town truly is. This is the home of Isaac. This is a couple of years after the sudden departure, a couple of years before the events we are witnessing in the current season. Meg talks about her mother dying the day before the sudden departure and how everyone considers her to be lucky because at least she knows where her mother went. Meg disagrees with this sentiment. She asks if she needs her hand printed, but Isaac shakes his head. The handprints are for seeing the future. This isn't why Meg is here. He mixes up a concoction and gets Meg to chew it up and then spit it into his hand. He rubs it together and asks Meg what she wants to know. Meg explains that her mother was about to tell her something before she went to the bathroom. She wants to know what her mother was going to say. Isaac explains that a lot of people on their deathbed say stupid shit. He knows that whatever he finds out, it isn't going to fix whatever is broken inside of Meg. She stares at Isaac and tells him that's bullshit, that he's full of bullshit. Isaac calmly reveals that he knows her mother sent her salad back to the kitchen because it came with walnuts and she didn't like walnuts. How could he know this? Now, is Meg certain she wants to know what her mother was going to say? Tell me, she says. Outside, the fiancé watches as Meg leaves the home. She tells him that Isaac wasn't the real deal. Later, she sits alone on a bench, smelling the jumper that once belonged to her mother. She's silently weeping, lost in her thoughts. A young girl approaches her and offers her a baby carrot. The young girl states that you can't cry while you eat a baby carrot. That young girl is Evie, a few years younger than when she disappeared with her friends. Meg takes a carrot and Evie sits alongside her. They eat baby carrots in silence. Evie says she'd love to tell Meg a joke, but she doesn't know any. Meg looks at Evie and says, knock, knock. She then proceeds to tell Evie the pointless joke that Evie would one day tell her father on the day that she disappeared. Evie smiles at the joke and introduces herself, and Meg does the same. I'm sorry you didn't find what you were looking for here, says Evie. Nobody ever does. As Meg begins to get back on the bus, she stops to take one last look at the town that has disappointed her so much. She looks down and spits with disgust on the road before getting on the bus. 
We now see a new bus driving along from a driver's point of view. It could be any suburban town, but when the bus turns into a street, they're stopped by a group of people all dressed in white. It is the guilty remnant, and they have a new leader in Meg. They break into the bus, drag the driver out onto the street, and then Meg gets on. She shows everyone that she has a hand grenade pulls the pin and rolls it up the aisle. She then calmly walks off the bus as two men ram a crowbar across the door, trapping whoever is inside. As Meg walks away, smiling to herself, we hear screaming and discover the bus is a school bus and the screams are those of children. Meg drives to a big mansion and lets herself inside. She walks through empty rooms that have the windows and mirrors covered in white sheets. Meg finally comes to a room where three members of the guilty remnant sit. This looks like a hearing from members who are higher up than Meg. They begin to write questions to her, but Meg just begins talking. The leaders sigh and they begin to have the conversation. They want to know what she was doing with the bus. They want to know why she's gone back on their agreement, which is nothing can happen with children. Kids bring in the authorities, something that they like to avoid. Meg disagrees. She wants to step it up, that people are forgetting. She wants to remind people by putting her cigarette out in people's eyes. The leaders disagree with violence. They see it as weak. But again, Meg disagrees. The leaders also know that there are rumours about plans to carry out actions that they don't know about. They've heard rumours about plastic explosives being purchased. Meg smiles, a flash of the Jardin Bridge and a caravan appears before our eyes, and then we're back in the room. She pretends that she will be compliant, but nobody there believes her. They point out that her arm of the guilty remnant is losing members, and they show her a picture of Tommy, who continues to hug people's pain away. They want Meg to do something about this. At another gathering, Tommy talks to a group of strangers about his encounters with Holy Wayne and how Wayne passed his powers on to him. Meg walks in and stares at Tommy, and when it is time to have a hug, she lines up. Tommy hugs away the pain of these people before Meg makes her way to the front. Tommy knows who she is, but he's in character, and he says he can hug her pain away. As Tommy hugs Meg, she leans in close to his ear so only he can hear and whispers that she can do this for real. It is now night time and Tommy sits alone in the venue drinking, smoking. Laurie arrives and wonders where he's been, that she had a whole group of people who were waiting for him and when he didn't arrive, they not only left, but they took their donation money with them as well. Mother and son argue. This whole scam might be working for the people, but it isn't working for Tommy. Laurie doesn't think it matters. As long as they're doing good, the ends justify the means. Tommy snaps at her. He thinks his mother is pimping him out because her book failed, and now she won't have to run over people anymore and can feel better about leaving her family. Laurie slaps Tommy, and with that he walks out. The next morning, Tommy wakes on a bench and takes a swig of whiskey. He watches as someone dressed in all white drives up dumps their dog on the street, and then drives off. Drunk and angry, Tommy makes his way to the guilty remnant base that he once infiltrated, and he causes a scene. He wants to see Meg. By the time she arrives, he's been beaten up by the men there. Meg wants to know what he wants, and he tells her he wants his pain taken away. He wants to be a part of this. But Meg looks at him and knows what he really wants, his family. Tommy points out that if he wanted a family, he could move to Jarden, Texas, and be with Kevin, Nora, and Jill. Meg begins to laugh. That's where she's going. Meg just can't stop laughing.
That night, Meg drives Tommy towards Texas. She takes a call on her phone, her ringtone sounding like the clicking of a cricket. The same sound that was driving John insane. After taking the call, Meg tells Tommy she has something amazing planned. Tommy wants to know why Meg forced him to have sex with her, but rather than answer, Meg pulls over and takes Tommy to a bar. They go in and talk about their families while knocking back drinks. Tommy talks about his father leaving and Kevin adopting him, raising him. Meg says that she never knew her father, that her mother married a man called Elliot who said all the right things and then left after a year. When her mother died, they cremated her and sent her into space. She loved astrology. She wanted to be amongst the stars. Meg takes Tommy to the dance floor and pulls him in close. He asks, what is happening? She leans in and kisses him, her arms around his neck. He says it feels nice. Meg then reveals that the reason she fucked him was that she wanted to get him pregnant. Tommy doesn't understand, but Meg doesn't have any interest in sharing her thoughts. She walks out of the bar and Tommy follows. The next morning they arrive at a compound that is hidden away from main roads. There's been a situation and when Meg drives in, it turns out that a young man trail bike riding got lost and has now seen whatever they're up to. He begs to be let free and it is suggested that as of tomorrow, anything he saw won't matter. Meg isn't interested and declares that he has to be stoned to death. Tommy follows Meg, but she's not interested in him anymore. She has her plan and he is not part of it. Tommy watches as Meg walks off and enters a barn, the door closed. That night, Tommy stares at the barn and wondering what might be inside. A woman approaches Tommy and writes on her notepad, You came with Meg. She's going to change everything. Tommy watches as Meg and her cohorts leave the barn. It is night time and Meg drives to the outskirts of Jarden. The camp is full of people counting down to the anniversary of the sudden departure. It is the next day. It feels like the camp is sliding into madness. While Meg looks around, she's shocked to bump into Matt Jamison. Then it is Matt's turn to be stunned when Meg talks. He figures she must have left the guilty remnant, and he is ecstatic for her. The two sit together and share some tea. Matt happily tells Meg about Kevin and Nora and Mary. He talks about his experiences here. He's also shocked that they're both there, that it is crazy. But once again, Meg disagrees. Meg always disagrees. They're both at Jarden because it is safe. She explains the guilty remnant wouldn't work in Miracle because nobody in the town is in pain. Matt looks closely at Meg. Remember, he's very good at reading people. He knows she's lying. He points out that it is the anniversary of her mother's death. He knows this because he reminded her of the time Meg attacked him when he was handing out his flyers. Matt apologises but says he was just trying to make her feel again. Meg wonders what Matt is doing, what any of them are doing, that they're not doing anything, they're just waiting. And what they don't realise is, they're waiting for her. Matt looks at her, desperately trying to read her face, but he's lost, confused. He doesn't really know what she's hinting at. Back at the compound, Tommy wakes and creeps gently away from the sleeping members of the cult. He goes over to the barn and manages to find his way in. He looks around inside and all that is there is a caravan. The windows are papered over so he can't see inside. He tries the door, but it is locked. He looks about and finds an axe. He uses it to force open the door. He looks inside, but doesn't know what to make of what he sees. Staring back at him is Evie and her missing friends. Who are you? Tommy asks. Evie holds up a notebook, writes on it, and then holds it up for Tommy to read. It doesn't matter. 
So Meg has consistently been an underrated character for me, the one who was always in the background of scenes and reacting rather than taking the lead. Yet when you look back at season one and you look very closely, you can see that it is an origin story for who Meg is going to turn into. And (laughs) she has turned into the ultimate enemy. The moment with the children on the bus and the fake grenade is more evil than anything a Marvel villain follows through with. What she did to Tommy in the back of that van is an incredibly brutal act regardless of how you read it. The way she has taken on the teachings of the guilty remnant and coerced them into being more militant shows that she wasn't just a good soldier, but a learner, a listener, and ultimately a true believer. That's what makes her so scary. Seeing her before the day of the sudden departure lets us see that it wasn't just her mother dying that sent her down this path. Meg is already broken. Why else would she feel a need to be doing cocaine during the day just to get through a lunch with her mother? Why do you want to do cocaine when you could be eating food? Like, eating food is the best. (laughs) Why would you ruin that? These aren't the actions of someone who is happy. These aren't the actions of someone in total control of her life. In the brief exchange between mother and daughter, we get a sense of a dynamic that has been at play throughout their lives together. The mother who wants to look out for her daughter wants to help in any way she can. The daughter who is constantly pushing back, a girl who has been relentless all her life. I don't think this is the first time they've disagreed on the mother helping out. They quite clearly love each other. But does Meg look at her mother with a sense of dismissiveness, a feeling of betrayal? We hear later in her conversation with Tommy that her father left when she was young and that another man came along, said all the right things, and then he too left. Does Meg look at this as her mother being weak, or is her mother incredibly strong, willful, and pushing these men away? In denying her mother's request to pay for the wedding, is Meg punishing her mother or just trying to be independent, different? The fact that she needs drugs to give her courage to get through a simple lunch suggests that this point in time, Meg isn't strong enough to deal with life, let alone her mother's request. She needs to be removed from the situation to just cope. And when she returns from the bathroom to find her mother dying, she is so removed that she fails to be present as the woman that brought her into this world slips away. We've always known that Meg is angry. We see it all throughout the first season, the way she swings the axe into the tree or the way she attacks Matt with his flyers. We even see it with her impatience towards Laurie before they place the mannequins throughout Mapleton to remind them that there is no point in moving on. When we see her in Miracle, she's still a lost soul. You can't help but empathise with her that the death of her mother, which is the end of her world, took place the day before the sudden departure. Imagine having your personal and genuine grief, one of the worst experiences most people will ever have to endure, hijacked by a worldwide event. Just think about it. There have to be people out in our world who lost loved ones the day before September 11. Imagine how they must feel, and that is where we find Meg. It makes sense she is looking for closure, and often when we search for that moment, when we search for anything that will make us feel remotely normal, we will turn to the fantastic to find that solace. There are two things that happen in Jarden that stand out to me. One is that Meg has obviously been visiting a lot of psychics in the hope of discovering what her mother had to say, and also that her fiancé comes across as a pretty good guy. He questions her motivations for going to a psychic again, even if it means they travelled to this town under false pretenses, but he doesn't scold her. He lets Meg do what she has to do and patiently waits. That Meg fails to see that she has that kind of support alongside her gives us an insight into where she's at.
Of course, the visit with Isaac is telling. For starters, it does feel like Isaac has been telling the truth all along about his abilities. How else would he know about the salad being sent back because of the walnuts? He is also correct about what Meg needs to hear. He must know that whatever story Meg's mother was about to tell her, it wasn't consequential. It wasn't really going to say anything that would heal. Maybe it was unimportant. Maybe she was going to say something to Meg that would have annoyed her. The compassion he shows Meg in not wanting to reveal the story is real. But as we know, once Meg has a cause, she is relentless. She demands to know, and the next moment we see her, she's openly dismissive of the experience. We then find her alone on the bench, weeping, lost, and it is only a chance meeting with Evie that turns her around. That chance encounter turns everything around. Evie is a name though of Latin, Hebrew, and Norman origin, meaning life. Evie is quite clearly a lost little girl. I'm guessing at this point in her teenage years, she's a girl with braces who has a father in prison for trying to murder her grandfather, a brother who is lost in his faith, and a mother who is trying to hold it all together while having moments where she literally can't hear her daughter and also possibly metaphorically. When Evie says to Meg that you can't cry when you're eating baby carrots and then proceeds to eat them herself, the implication here is that she also would be crying if she too weren't eating the baby carrots. That these two lost souls find one another is one of the most important moments in the series. That Evie's desire to tell a joke but being incapable of doing so, which in turn inspires Meg to remember the pointless knock-knock gag, is the turning point in this villain's origin story. Evie, just by chance, brings life to Meg. Meg gladly leaves that place and spits on the ground in contempt. She spits on a miracle and now she's a woman looking for a cause, a cause she finds in the guilty remnant. It makes sense to me that Tommy would be infatuated with Meg. Let's leave out the obvious in that Meg is beautiful, like Liv Tyler is a beautiful woman. Tommy has his own mother issues, a mother who was divorced from his biological father and then adopted by his new dad and Kevin. Laurie is an incredibly strong woman who breaks after the sudden departure and reacts by breaking away from her family. Then Tommy is adrift. He sees two classmates commit suicide by jumping off a building. He goes looking for answers and falls under the thrall of Holy Wayne. He tries to look after Wayne's bride and child, only to be once again abandoned. When he finds his mother now broken away from the cult she joined, he falls in with her plans. He's called out and forced to have sex with the leader who flaunts her power over him sexually and physically. It makes sense that she wanted to make Tommy pregnant. She wanted to fill him with ideas and thoughts he is incapable of making alone. Tommy is a lost character, and when he's incapable of articulating his issues with Laurie's later scam, all he can do is lash out and run back to Meg. He turns to Meg because she feels true. She might be awful, she might be cruel, but she is steadfast. She doesn't waver. Often when you're lost in your life, those people can be incredibly appealing incredibly attractive they have a sort of charisma that can't be explained but let's not forget tommy is also a good guy regardless of how lost he is he doesn't buy into what is happening with the guilty remnant and it'll be interesting to see how he reacts to the revelation of the girls remember he doesn't know the girls are missing to him they're just teenage members of the cult Meg discarding her plaything and then heading to the camp to stake out her next action gives us the perfect face-to-face with Matt Jamison. Matt is also a true believer. He is also incapable of being thrown off the scent. When Matt has a cause, there's no stopping him. 
Matt can be naive, but once again, he proves that he reads people well. He doesn't know what Meg's plan is, but he knows something isn't right. The match of wills between the two is underplayed, but it is a hell of a match. Meg doesn't let much show on her face. In fact, she's at her most beautiful when she gives in to what she is truly thinking. And that is the moment when she discovers Kev and Nora are in Jarden. That she can look so beautiful in a moment when she is at her most honest, when she knows that those two people are going to have to deal with whatever she has planned, makes it scarier, more evil. For a while there, I thought Meg was going to blow up the bridge, but now it looks like a different type of bomb is about to explode. Her followers believe she is going to change everything. And we now have one more episode to find out if that's true. Time for some squid bits. Uh, Meg's mother tells her daughter to write in the cheque the 14th of October because the number 13 is an unlucky number. There's an awful irony in the stoner-looking guy being stoned by the guilty remnant. Let that be a lesson, kids. Don't get high and go for a wander. (laughs) Sit on the lounge. (laughs) Don't leave the house. Uh, This is the first episode not to feature Kevin Garvey at all, not even in archive footage. Damon Lindelof said that the seeds for Meg's character turn in season two was inspired by him being on set to watch Liv Tyler shoot the tree chopping scene in the season one episode, Penguin One, Us Zero. He was inspired by Tyler's choice to play that scene as angry and dangerous. Then her choice to play the scene in the final episode of season one, The Prodigal Son Returns, where she is tired and beaten, but her performance just included this dead-eye stare, made Lindelof realise that Meg was a force to be reckoned with. This allowed the writers to tell a story this season about the radicalisation of religion and the consequences that come of it. The manhole covers blowing out is similar to the same occurrence in Mapleton on the same day. Cecilia is reading What's Next, the book first seen in the episode Guest. Meg's grenade stunt also recalls a moment from Guest as the what the Manhattan branch of the Guilty Remnant do when they hand out fake grenades and hand one to Nora. Meg's ringtone is a cricket chirping, the same sound that drove John crazy in Axis Mundi. Uh, I guess we can theorise that the so-called cricket noises was a hidden mobile phone in the Murphy house, and that must have been Meg getting in touch with Evie. In the book, the guilty remnant don't have a governing body of elders or committee overseeing all the different operations. In the book, each affiliate follows basically the same guidelines, but govern themselves without a structure. Since this story takes place after the events in the book, I guess the implication is that possibly a structure has evolved over time. In the book, there is a botched search warrant looking for young girls in the guilty remnant after a father claims they were abducted and held against their will. This event might inspire the no children rule that is talked about in this episode. Tom echoes Holy Wayne's ritual of asking a person's name before hugging them. Tom and Laurie going from place to place also mirrors how Holy Wayne began his career in the book. Meg's father abandoning her at a young age is an invention of the show. In the book, there is the implication that her father was still a part of her life well into adulthood. That's the end of today's podcast. Sorry for the lack of energy. I'm just feeling kind of wiped out at the moment. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, I'll be back with our final episode for season two of The Leftovers next week. If this is your first time watching the series, I'm really pumped for you i can't wait to hear what you think you're in for a 
like a real treat. I don't want to talk it up too much. <laughs> Nothing worse than someone saying, it's amazing. And then, you know, it doesn't live up to that. But I, I think it's pretty brilliant. And then we've got season three, which is outstanding as well. Anyway, it's all great. It's all great. Uh, if you would like to share your thoughts, please come over to our Facebook page. You can either leave them on the uh, open page or join our private page where you can talk about things uh, like uh, this or anything else without spoilers and having to worry about anything. Uh, let's finish with a quote from Liv Tyler, which I found today, and it fits quite well with my, and I hope you've got your fingers crossed for me, uh, my short quarantine time. Solitude has its own very strange beauty to it. I agree with that. I better agree with that. Especially at the moment. Anyway, until then. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.